Consult is a monthly podcast about software developers who work on Apple platforms to create client products. Join us each month as we talk business, Swift, Objective-C, contracts, App Store, and all things Apple. I'm your host, David Kopeck. Hi, everybody. Thanks for joining us again for episode four of Consult. Got a great interview for you today with Marcus Zara, very well-known software developer and definitely the most experienced consultant we've had on the show so far. Gotten some great feedback from everyone on Twitter. Please uh, keep that coming. I'm Dave Kopeck on Twitter, D-A-V-E-K-O-P-E-C. Also, please leave us an iTunes review. That would help with the popularity of the show. And I just want to give you an update on scheduling. And I originally said when I started this midsummer that I was going to try to create an episode every two weeks. That turned out to be a little bit unrealistic. So I'm going to more of a monthly schedule. You'll notice the last couple of episodes have been spaced out about a month apart. So that's our new target, and I'm going to stick to it. So I'll see you again in November, but I hope you enjoy this excellent episode with Marcus Zara. Without further ado, let's go to the interview. So my guest today is Marcus Zara, very experienced iOS and OS X software developer, probably the most experienced developer we've actually had on the show of the four guests we've had so far in Consult. He's an author of books on core data and core animation. He's an AFM racer in his spare time. He's a well-known blogger, and for many years he ran Zara Studios and later was at Martian Craft. Is there anything I missed? No, that sums it up rather nicely, although uh, as of July of this year, I'm no longer with Martian Craft. Right, right, yes. Um, and going back, I always ask guests, how did you first get into computer science or computer programming, and, and what gave you the itch earlier in your life? Ooh, that goes way, 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 way back. So when I was a child, um, my father recognized that I liked math, so he, he fed me as much math as he, as he possibly could while I was growing up, and a home computer was all the rage uh, back in the early 80s, and uh, Timex Sinclair had come out with one that was really inexpensive, and he had purchased one of those for me, let me play with that, and I just, I fell right into it, you know, a duck in water kind of thing, and it just, everything kind of blossomed from there, he fed it, my schools helped fed, uh, feed my passion for it, um, and then after I got out of school, there wasn't really any jobs for it unless you spent, you know, five, six years in a college, and then you'd become a mainframe, and, you know, really, really, you know, talking quite a, quite a ways back, so I ended up getting into the legal profession as a you know fairly intelligent person who happened to be good with computers and pursued a legal career for a while while being the guy who fixed all the computers or set up the databases and did all that kind of stuff and then the kind of the the, the custom programming kind of took off in the 90s. So I ended up switching tracks uh, away from a legal career into software development in the 90s uh, formally. You know, I had been doing it for all these years, but you were never tagged as a programmer back then. You were, you know, the guy who fixed it. Um, and then finally in the 90s, I switched over. It was right about the time Java kind of came out is when I switched over. And it's like, okay, now banks and telecommunications and all these are like, oh, this is a, a new programming language. We need fresh, fresh people in. And uh, it's kind of caught that wave and switched over at that point. And how long was it before you started Zara Studios? So 
mid nineties through very early two thousands, I was working for, for corporations and I was kind of on a treadmill where I'd, I'd come into the company, I'd get interviewed, I'd get hired, I'd do work. Uh, they liked the work that I did, so I'd get promoted, and then they'd assign people to me. And then the next thing I turn around, I'm a manager, and I hated it. So I quit. Um, or got, you know, in some cases, got, you know, got, got let go because of downsizing or whatever. Um, but it was, it was this constant pattern of start a job, programming, happy, boom, manager. Okay, new job over and over and over again. And then early 2000s, I kind of finally woke up and said, wow, this is a pattern and I really don't like it. I'm, I need to break out of this pattern. And my wife and I discussed it and said, okay, I'm going to start my own software company where I'm just coding, where I'm just an independent contractor. And right about that time, the company I was with, which was Verizon, um, they did another downsizing. And of course, you know, when they do a downsizing, they, they sort by salary, not by who do we need. And I was fairly high on the list of the salary, so I got downsized. Um, and they gave me a severance because I had a lot of vacation time sa saved up. So my wife and I said, hey, we now have this that we can work with. Let's, let's run with it and see where it goes. So right about 2005 is when we started Zara Studios. Um, shortly, four months later, I got laid off, and we ran with it. And it's been running, it ran great uh, after that for quite a few years. Now, I, I've done a little research looking on the Internet Archive. I saw that one of your big products was a point-of-sale system called SE Sales. Um, can you tell us a little bit about the story behind that? Certainly. So when I realized that I was on this treadmill and I was like, okay, I'm going to start my own company, I'm going to create a product, and I'm going to do you it. Know, be independent. I'm going to be my own boss. We were looking for something to do. Uh, what kind of product was out there? Uh, we were on the Mac. We were happy with the Mac system. My wife was a photographer, um, and she said, well, I want to use my Mac as a photographer. I need this. I need a point-of-sale system. I need a way to be able to you know, vend all this stuff on the Mac. And there really wasn't any good products out there that were in a decent price range. So that's kind of how we fell into that niche. Um, we built it. It actually became quite successful because a lot of people were in the exact same space as her wanting to use the Mac. The Mac was just becoming popular. The laptops were, you know, head and shoulders above anything on the Windows side. And people were just begging to be able to use uh, to, to use it for point of sale. So we ended up uh, becoming quite successful. And it was originally just kind of our own itch. We were scratching an itch uh, to solve a problem that she needed. How did you get into consulting? So... After a while, I realized that owning a product company isn't the greatest thing in the world. Um, and I had written a book on core data, and then people started coming to me saying, can you help me with this problem? Can you help me with this other problem? And naturally, I said, sure, yes, you know, we can do that. I can do this on the side because the product's kind of got a life of its own and continued to you know, charge them hourly. And I kind of realized that there was – that it was a growing mass there, that we could see that this was a, a growing field. So I, I kind of toyed around with the idea of going, okay, I'll go do this consulting work and then I'll pay someone else to work on the point of sale system um, and continue to make money, money that way because I was paying them less than I was getting paid as a contractor. And going on and on and on, the contracting got bigger and bigger to the point where it's like, okay, I need to pull you off of working on the point of sale system because I need you to help me on this contract. And then after a while, uh, we got an opportunity to sell the point of sale system. It's like, 
it's not making nearly enough money compared to what we're doing in consulting. Let's go ahead and dump the point of sale system and switch over to cons uh, consulting full time. And this is right about the time when uh, the, the iPhone came out. So we were, you know, right at that, right about that point, is like it just exploded. Um, went from, you know, having a, a short list of clients to people, you know, quite literally banging down the door looking for uh, experienced developers. So this is about 2008 or so. Yes, about 2008. And where were you located geographically throughout all of this? Sorry, I should have asked you that earlier. Uh, so from the beginning of, well, actually, in 2000, 1999 and 2000, I relocated to Colorado Springs. And I stayed in Colorado Springs up through 2011. Um, and I'm now in uh, Northern California. Okay, very cool. So there's a lot to unwrap there uh, in the transition that you made from being a product company to being a consulting company. You, you mentioned that you didn't really like being a product company. Can you expand more on that? It, uh, it was exhausting uh, for the most part. People are – and we're running into this uh, you know, a million times more now in the App Store where people expect a tremendous amount. They're like, I paid this small amount of money. I want lifetime support. You know, um, I you have to put in this feature. It's like, well, you're the only person that wants that, and five other people specifically said they don't want that. <laughs> well, but I paid for, I paid my money. I want that feature, and I was I literally at one point in time had someone who just answered emails, and I had someone who was just you know feeling requests so we can figure out what what to add in the next feature, and it was just it became so much that it was like this really is not the direction that I want to go. And what I really like is solving hard problems. And then the, I go, once I get into maintenance mode, you know, somebody else can do that. You know, I really, you know, that's what challenges my brain. That's what gets me up in the morning is like, give me a hard problem. And that's what the consulting did is it really was a nice, here's a hard problem. Can you do this? And you're like, uh, nobody's ever done that before. It's kind of impossible, but maybe if we go, all right, let's try it. And then when we solved it or proved that it couldn't be done, I walked away and said, hey, here's your code. Here's it's all documented. You know how it works because I, I you know, worked with you throughout the whole process. It's solved. Maintenance mode. Goodbye. And I could go on to the next heart problem and go on to the next heart problem. And that was, was kind of keeping, keeping me alive there as opposed to putting myself back into the position I had at the corporate, which is, hey, look, you're now a manager of your own company. Congrats. You know. Well, it's interesting because that's the opposite direction that a lot of people who I talk to who are in consulting want to go. A lot of them dream of being just indie product developers, and they're, they're in the consulting world now. So it sounds like this is a little bit of a, a word of caution to them. Uh, do you, have you noticed that, that there's a lot of people in consulting who really their dream is to be indie developers? Oh, absolutely. Uh, you know, even in the corporate world, because I, I do deal with a lot of corporate clients, they all, they're like, oh, it must be great. You set your own hours, and you could take these, you know, three-month-long vacations to Europe, and it's like, sure, some people can do that. The bulk of them are working a day job to actually pay the bills, and they're working a night job and working on the weekends, because I know I did that, to write their own product. And, oh, depending on which employer they have, they probably have two pieces of hardware, because they're not allowed to do their own work on their employer's hardware. That kind of stuff. It's, it's a lot of work. And then you put it out into the app store and hope. Right. You know, you might succeed, which if you do, fantastic. That's awesome. But the bulk of them don't. And you have to accept that reality that, you know, writing the app, which is the fun part, you know, for developers, is the easy part. 
Mm-hmm. You know, that's that's the part we can all do. We're all engineers. We're a bit nuts. We like that. And we can play with the code till forever. And then once we ship it, then the real job starts. And then it's the marketing and the networking and getting the word out there and the customer contacts and, and continuing on through that. That's the part that, you know, we as engineers are not so great at. And I realized that in myself, I didn't want to do that. You know, I, I, I like writing the code. I just, I have no energy to go out and, you know, press the flesh and, and get, you know, talk to the journalists and, and figure out which marketing streams are going to work and which ads I'm going to run and you know, all that. I just, I don't have the energy for it. I don't have the brain for it. So it, it just didn't work for me. That makes sense. You mentioned that writing the core data book may have helped with your initial um, consulting launch. I, I wrote a book on Dart uh, a couple years ago, and I, I noticed that. I got a significant amount of inbound of potential consulting projects on Dart. Obviously, Dart is a probably a much bigger niche than, than core data, and Dart hasn't really taken off the way we thought it might. But um, can you tell us more about that, how your reputation as an author may contribute to, to your success as a consultant? Oh, absolutely. Um, I did. I spoke about this a little bit a few years ago in a, a talk I called "Being a Subject Matter Expert," and I really need to do that talk again because it's so valuable. But having authority when you're dealing with a client or dealing with a potential client is worth its weight in gold. Writing a book, you will first of all, you'll never make money writing a book. Okay, there's the, <laughs> yes. again, again, again. There's the one percent exceptions to that, but. You're not going to write. You're not going to make money writing a book. Okay. If you if you keep track of your hours and you realize what your billable rate is, and then you write a book and you look at the hours and how much your billable rate is, that's a significant amount of money, and you're not going to see that much coming back from the book. Just accept that. You're writing the book to have authority, to have a, a, a something you can point to to the client when they say, "Well, how good are you?" Well, I wrote the book on it. Right, right. That, that, that carries a lot of weight. I, I've had plenty of conversations where I'm talking with either another engineer or a manager inside of a client, and I'm telling them, this is the way this needs to work. And they're like, well, what's the authority you're citing? I was like, me. I wrote, the bo- I wrote the book on this. I know this for a fact. I've got the experience, you know, and everybody, you know, this is, you know, I've done the research. I've done the homework. You know, there's no one else to cite because I am the one who, who understands this. That has a tremendous amount of value to it. Um, it. It helps when you're working with a client. It helps when you're getting clients. It just, they're going to believe someone with a book over someone without a book. Unfortunately, it doesn't mean the book has to be good because uh, I mean, you can, you know, as long as it's published, it's it must be good. Otherwise, it wouldn't be published, right? right. Uh, so they... It's not a matter of, you know, I wrote the greatest book in the world. It's the fact that you wrote a book. You know, I, I often joke that you write a book so you have something to throw at clients. But it's, <laughs> it's kind of that way. It's, it's, it gives you that authority. And that helps. Helps a lot. Right. So your first book was on core data and you also co-authored a book on core animation. Why, with the second book, why did you decide to go the co-author route? Uh, that was a mutual decision between uh, myself and the co-author, Matt Long. He wanted to write a book, but he didn't want to write that one on his own. Um, Likewise, the publisher wanted me to write a book for them. They were interested in me. And unfortunately, at the exact same time, I'd already signed the contract to write the book with Core Data for Pragmatic Programmers. So uh, Addison Wesley couldn't 
I couldn't write a Cordiata book for them. So kind of went together going, Matt didn't want to write the book by himself. They wanted my name on something. So we kind of said, okay, we'll write this one together and see what happens. Um, then it, it was it was a very experimental book in a couple of different ways. And I think it turned out quite well, although it's it hasn't been updated in a while. But um, it was it was an experiment to see how two authors would gel, which I think turned out really well. Um, there were some ex- some printing experiments that gone went around went on with the book that were not as successful. Um, but overall, I think the book was a success. You're also a very well known conference speaker, and I also noticed you have a very high um, karma rating on Stack Overflow. These all are, including being an author, build your public profile. Um, and how much is building your public profile, aside from saying, okay, I wrote this book, important to being a consultant? Uh, to me, that kind of goes to karma. Um, the, the, I find that the more I give to a community, the more I get back from the community. So I, don't, I can't put a number or a dollar figure on it. I just know that the more I... I help this community, the more that I, it, it helps me in, in return. You know, when I put a tweet up there going, how does this work? I get a hundred answers. You know, if I say, hey, I've got contract time open, anybody, you know, anybody know of anything, I get feedback. So it's it's about being in the community, community and embracing the community. Um, and this kind of goes back to before the iPhone. Uh, before the iPhone, when I first got into this community, everybody knew everybody. There was... You know, a couple thousand developers total around the world for the Mac. There were not a lot, you know, uh, and we all knew each other. And it was a very tight-knit community, so much so that competitors would share information. They would share code. You know, if you were competing with somebody else, you go, hey, how'd you make that work? And they'd ship you the code. And they hear, this is how it works, take it. And it was a very friendly community because we were all supporting the dying platform. Um and that, I kind of I've I've just carried on with that, and a lot of others have carried on with that, even into the iPhone, where it's now it's not thousands, it's millions of developers, but there's still these the the people who are giving to the community, who are trying to help it out, and it kind of comes back to you. So you know, every morning with my coffee, I try to answer three Stack Overflow questions. I don't always succeed every morning, but that's that's the goal, and try to try to at least you know answer them, review them, upvote them. Um, Give some feedback there to the community. If I see something that's beyond a Stack Overflow question, I, I jot it down. And say, okay, I need to write an article on this, and I'll write, you know, and then I write articles and publish those out there. And it's all about giving that to the community. The same thing with conferences. Go in there, and it's like, okay, let me let me you know let me help, let me educate, so that we can all write better software. Because the sorry, go ahead. I was say because you know the software is kind of on a decline right now, and it's. We want to try to try to get that quality back up. Can you speak more about that? You feel software is on a decline right now. Certainly, people have been criticizing Apple's quality the last couple of years in the realm of software. But you feel more generally that that software development has has been on a bit of a downward trend. It definitely has. Um, I have a myopic view where I don't look at the pretty pictures. Yeah, you know, I'm a, I'm a. I'm a data guy. I'm a network guy. I'm a very much of the back of the cabinet kind of guy. And that's the stuff that is like needles in my eyes when it's not working right. So I see that in pretty much every app that touches the network is is not doing it as well as it could be doing it. They're 
everybody's so focused on how pretty is the app, how how amazing is the user experience, and forgetting that the networking is a crucial part of the networking of the experience. So the storyboards are beautiful and the pictures are beautiful. And when you go to use the app while you're in an elevator in the middle of Manhattan, it's a terrible experience. But nobody nobody codes for that. And I I, I do loop Apple in there with this. Everybody's got this problem. Um, and it can be so much better. We can do better than this, but we have to focus on that back inside, focus on it as part of the overall whole of the app and convince management and the people who, you know, write the checks that yes, you can't see this, you can't touch it, but when we get it wrong, everybody's going to know it. So we need to invest the time and energy to get it right. And what can we do as a community to to improve the um, getting that message out to everybody? Mm. Get that message out to, to the entire iOS development community. I wish I had an answer for that. Um, I try at every conference to talk about it. Um, I'm actually writing a talk for next year about the subject in more in depth um, and how that I feel that we're in the, the, the third computer age and it started a few years ago. Um, I'm not exactly sure how to get the best message out there. I wish that Apple would do more, but I don't know how they would do more. Um, perhaps leading by example would be a good way to do it. Uh, I think their consumer-facing apps suffer the same problem that everybody else does. Um, as developers, we need to be testing in, no, in, in low to zero bandwidth locations. Mm -hmm. um, that's a big one. That's you know, the easiest one in the world. You know, turn, on, turn on network latency and watch your app fall apart. Fix that. Um, we as developers need to learn that the networking side, the persistent side, is something that needs to be considered during the design. It's not something that we think about at the 11th hour before we ship the app. It's not part of performance tuning. It's part of app design. Um, and that's something that not a lot of people seem to buy into. They, they think that, oh, I'll build the app and then I'll tune it and that's how I'll make the networking better. No, that's, you've, we've already failed at that point. We have to build it as part of the app's design and take into consideration going, okay, what happens on this screen if the network goes away? You know, that question's rarely being asked during design time. Right, right. Well, I will say um, as a counterpoint, I build a lot of prototypes for very, very early stage apps. And sometimes the amount of effort that would go into putting a local cache, a local persistence, um, is just not worth it for the prototype. You just want to show a MVP that works, that isn't this, and this, is, this probably sounds awful to you. But at the same time, what happens is we don't intend those prototypes to be industrial strength versions that are going to launch for thousands of users. And then the client doesn't want to necessarily spend more money on, on doing it the right way. But with the initial budget that you had, that's what you could get built in a reasonable amount of time. The syncing issues around using something like Core Data as a backend can be immense. Let's say you're using, I worked on a project where I took over from a developer who was using Parse on the backend and Core Data as the local cache. And the, the syncing issues between the two were horrendous. Um, so how do you get around when you're on a, working on a prototype is, is it worth dealing with those syncing issues? Um, yes. So to back up to that, you know, we as engineers, as a community, need to, f to get over the fact that prototypes are going to production. 
it's been doing that for my entire life. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, and I'm fairly old, so this is not a new concept. This is, this happens and it will always happen. It'll continue to happen. So we need to accept that our prototypes need to be industrial grade. Mm. It, it sucks. Yes. But on the other side of it is, you know, if we're consultants and we're going from project to project to project and we're starting over again, over again, over again, by the third or fourth time you do it, it's going to be fast. You're not going to be sitting there going, okay, now how do I build a context again? How do I build a core data stack? No, you're going to be able to bang that stuff out. <clears throat> and if you build good design, it's kind of where my uh, my massive view controllers article right. on, yes, my, on my website came from, Yes, is if we build it from the beginning with the caching in place, it's not that much more code. It's a tiny amount more code in the beginning. And our app's built right, and our prototype's built right. So when they say this prototype's great, ship it. We don't have go. Oh crap! We we go. Yeah, it'll hold up, and we can we can build it right. It's not you know whether you're using Cordata or something else. Cordata just happens to be my hammer. It's not that hard. Um, specifically with Cordata, everybody's got this this belief that it's this incredibly verbose, complex thing that's that's unmanageable, mm-hmm. um, but it's not. To stand up core data, you can do it in six lines of code. Um, I actually threw down that challenge. I said it was five. I was wrong. It was six. We can use core data with a very tiny amount of code. Yes, it has a lot of complexity. It has a lot of features in it, but we don't need them for our prototype. We need them when we're on version four. Great. And they're there. They're, they're available. So build our prototype. Let's use core data as the cache. Let's make sure that our views feed from the cache. Let's make sure our networking code feeds into the cache. And we're probably two more hours, maybe three more hours into the project than we would have been if we had just used, I don't know, AF networking or whatever the, the current trend is. Right. It's not that much more. You know, we're losing a day, let's say, at the worst case, including testing and QA and all that stuff. It's an additional day. But we save that day now, and we don't have to have that conversation later when they say ship it, and we say we have to refactor it because we didn't build it right the first time. Right. Well, even more than the technical details, what you said before about the prototype needs to be industrial strength, I think is really the, the key takeaway message. Is that fair? Oh, absolutely. It's, we, it, it's, that's never going to go away, unfortunately. You know, until engineers become managers, which we avoid, um, and until managers must be engineers first before they can be managers, it's always going to be like that because they don't – non-engineers doesn't really understand that concept. They're like, well, you built it. It works. Why can't we ship it? They don't understand like, yeah, we built it, but it's made out of glass. You know, It's not as strong as it looks. This is fake because then worse, they come back to you and go, well, why didn't you build it right the first time? You know, what kind of incompetent person are you that you built it? You know, they don't understand the difference between this is just kind of a mock and this is not, you know. Um, you know, talk to people that have used apps like Briefs or some of the other uh, variants of it where they've had the client want to ship that. And right, that, right. to explain going, this is just pictures. Right. You know, there's no app. And they're like, no, it's perfect. It's exactly what we want. Ship it. It's like, no, it's it's, and they don't understand that. We have to accept that they don't understand that. You know, the you know, the, if the client was an engineer, they wouldn't have hired us in the first place. So we need to start off and just, and we need to bid appropriately. And and uh, yes, it's a hard thing. And sometimes you won't get the bid, and someone else will, but they'll end up building crap. But if you always build a good app, if you always build a solid back of the cabinet, you get to sleep better at night. And when they say ship that prototype, you can say, yep, go go for it. That makes a lot of sense and definitely something for, I think, a lot of consultants, including myself, to think about. 
So I want to go back a little bit to that 2008 era when the iPhone was just coming out. Now, you mentioned you were already doing some consulting projects before the iPhone came out. What was it like transitioning from doing Mac consulting projects to doing iOS consulting projects? Oh, it was it was ghost town to Wild West is about the best way I can describe it. So before the iPhone, before we actually had an SDK, um, clients were few and far between. The projects weren't that large. It was it was small stuff. Um, every once in a while, we got a really juicy client, but for the most part, it was small stuff. We were developing stuff for the Mac for a very small uh, niche of people, as well as you know the products. Um, so it was it was not huge. You were not you know, you were not rolling in dough. You were you know, you were making the mortgage payment, but that was you weren't going much beyond that. Um, when that SDK came out, everything changed. It was very, very large companies calling you and going, you know, we want you to fly here and stay here for six months yeah. and build the app. And yes, we will pay for it. Um, kind of conversations. I mean, it was literally, it was, you know, 2000 all over again. Um, it was the, you know, it was just money being tossed everywhere. Everybody was like, Ooh, this smartphone thing is real. We got to get in on this. Um, it took a little while to ramp up. It wasn't day one of the SDK, but was well within 12 months. Um, it was getting, it was getting big and, and being in the right place at the right time kind of thing, having a book on the persistence layer, I was having people going, calling me going, we need to, you know, you're an expert. Clearly you've written this book. It's a, it's a bestseller. We need you on this project. We need, we need someone on this project that's got experience. We've got three guys who know Ruby, who are learning Objective-C from your book. Come, come help us. So it was, it was that gold rush mentality that's so famous. I remember I was interning at the Associated Press in 2008. And we were building the AP News app. And as an intern, one of my jobs was let's find iPhone developers who didn't exist yet because there were no iPhone developers to build this AP News app. And we st I started just basically calling Mac developers out of the blue that I had heard about over the years because I was super into uh, the Mac community. And... People were didn't know where this was going to go. People didn't know um, just how big this was going to be, even though we knew the iPhone was, was a success. And obviously, the AP was putting the resources into building this news app. Um, when we would talk to these old-time Mac developers, they, didn't, uh, they weren't yet charging, let's say, the rates and, the, um, and have the expectations that would be, you would think would be commensurate with how successful the iPhone would be. Um, I remember that my boss at the AP was debating between uh, some developer who was charging $60 an hour versus one that was charging $45 an hour. And these were real old-time Mac developers. So it was certainly um, a different atmosphere, to be fair, right? Oh, definitely, definitely. When, it, when, the, fo when the phone first came out, uh, nobody knew how long it was going to last. They didn't know how many other people were on that call list. So they just went with the rates that they had from beforehand, which were reasonable um, to survive on at the you know at the time. Granted, you know nowadays sixty five dollars an hour for piecemeal work isn't as great as it was back then. No. Um, so the rates have definitely gone up, and it'll you know it dep also depends on where you live too. Um, so but, how did Zara Studios evolve over time, and and what eventually led to the merger with Martian Craft? So evolved over time where 
I was growing. I was hiring people. I was also letting some people go. I was struggling with trying to figure out exactly how to grow. Um, that took a couple of years to get that sorted out. And I went through quite a few uh, subcontractors before I found a couple of really good ones. And they, they really uh, made a difference. Um, one of them is still a very dear friend of mine today. And he's he, he helped helped me build the company beyond what it was because I had accidentally found someone who cared about my company as much as I did, um, which is extremely rare. So that helped. Um, when the when the iPhone kind of exploded and that money started coming in, um, I started increasing our rates and doing different things with different clients to figure out what was going to work best. Um, we ended up working out a few different rate programs, uh, mostly flat fee or monthly rates, that kind of stuff that helped out, helped the client understand what, what they were getting charged for. Um, and then it kind of got saturated a bit. So this is probably 2010 era. Um, I had already done some pretty high, for, high profile projects, uh, not all of them rave reviews, but all of them definitely talked about. And we were we were hitting a saturation point of like okay now we actually have to find clients and this was new because uh, from eight to ten you didn't have to find them you pretty much just had to stand out stand outside of Moscone with a sign that says I am a developer and the, you know they'll they'll mob you um, I actually remember two thousand nine Dub Dub where there was actually uh, people out standing outside handing out business cards um, looking for developers uh, there were companies that literally had sent someone in someone to the conference without a ticket and just said, find 10 developers, you know, wow. get 10 developers on the phone for me. Uh, it was that, you know, it was that desperate, that mad rush. And that, had, that was starting to wane. And I like to think of myself as someone who's looking fairly far into the future. And I knew that that bubble was not, it was not maintainable. That, you know, we went through this before in, in 2000. And then when that bubble burst, very bad things happened. And in, in 10, I was like going, hmm, this seems like it's leveling off. And leveling off means it's going to start declining and it's going to start maturing. And, and you know, companies are going to start gobbling up smaller developers and they're going to start building development shops. So that was kind of in the back of my head. And then uh, Kyle Richter and I met at a conference. We'd known each other for a few years. He had actually subcontracted for me at one point in time. Uh, we'd met at a conference, and we're like, yep, we're both kind of feeling the same thing. We're getting this feast and famine situation going on. Um, we got these highs and these lows, and it's hard to maintain employees and subcontractors when you may be idle for a month, you know, that kind of stuff. Uh, so we're like, hmm, we should hire a salesperson. Let's, you know, but neither one of us was really big enough to say, well, if a salesperson is good, we're going to get too much work. Then what do we do? So we got the idea of like, okay, well, let's share a salesperson. And that's where, kind of where empirical development came from, is the idea of empirical development would actually hire the salesperson. And then as the work came in from that salesperson, we would dole it out to either his company or my company. Uh, we'd share resources. And it, it, it got confusing, but that's kind of the, the how it started. Um, and we did that for a while, and it was getting quite successful. We were becoming more and more one company instead of a, a shared pool. And as it went along, then we started having conversations with uh, Martian Craft and quite a few conversations of, I think this is where the future is headed. This is, it's, these co bigger companies are coming up. They're showing up. You know, the Dwight and, Dwight and Touche of 
of the 21st century are coming. We need to plan for it. We need to align ourselves for when this happens. How you know, and we can do it either by getting gobbled up, which is fine, or becoming a bigger fish. And that's what led into the merger into Martian craft going, okay, let's, let's go ahead and become a bigger fish. Let's become the development shop um, and see where it goes and see how, you know, see how successful we can become. And how did it go? Uh, it took a little while, of course, because, you know, when you have, you know, four strong minds and four strong opinions, you get some very interesting conversations. Uh, but it took a little while to shake it out, but it worked. It's still working today. They're, they're growing, they're doing very successful things, and I expect them to be around for quite some time. So taking on employees, taking on subcontractors changes the dynamic of a business, of course, right? What advice would you have to developers who are more independent, consultants who are more independent and are thinking about bringing on their first subcontractors? I can speak from personal experience. Um, I brought on my first programming subcontractor. I brought on designers before over the summer, and I had a very bad experience, actually. Um, with the subcontractor quitting on me in the middle of the project, not because the work conditions were so bad or anything, but just because he decided to take on a full-time job. Maybe the incentive structure wasn't there for him um, in the way that it should have been. So so what kind of advice do you have for, for people taking on their first subcontractors? Um, I'm going to paraphrase advice that I got from uh, Michael Lopt, which is uh, Rand and Repros, if you're not familiar with his website. Uh, the first one's the hardest one uh, because you have to set up all the processes for that first one. So you, you, will, you will spend a tremendous amount of effort to get that first subcontractor or first employee on board to the point where you will question whether or not it was a good move because you're spending so much time making sure that person has what they need that you're not getting enough work done to the point where you're at – Instead of being at two people, you're at maybe 1.25 or 1.3 people because you're, you have so much overhead. Um, the good news is it scales beautifully. So as you, as you get more people, you get more time back. And it, it, so keep that in mind. The first one's going to suck. But after you get the first one working correctly and you get the processes in place and you get the second one, all of a sudden the, the economy of scales does start to kick in. So that's good news. Um, number two is you're going to become a manager. So you you do not imagine that you're going to bring on this second person and then both of you are going to be coding in a room and happy as clams and carry it on. One of you has to be the decision maker. One of you has to be the person who keeps the pipeline full, that keeps the clients coming in, that bills the invoices, that pays the payroll, pays the bills. And that's going to be you because your name's on the, on the, on the door plaque. So accept the fact that you're, you're promoting yourself to manager. Um, it may be part-time manager to begin with, but if the company gets more and more successful, you will be the manager. And if that's not happy, if that's not a thing that you can accept, you probably want to reconsider um, expanding that and maybe you know go a different route. Without going into the details of necessarily this specific product, what was the most difficult consulting project that you've dealt with in your career? Oh, that's easy. Uh, the daily. That was that was the biggest challenge because we had done we were developing something that had never been developed before. Um, it was far outside of everybody's comfort range. 
Um, we were on site for the entire thing. So for me, I was literally living in Manhattan for six months. Uh, we were doing 18 to 20 hour days, seven days a week, um, on a platform that was a first generation platform. I mean, we were, we developed that app for the iPad one, which had very little memory, very little storage space, one CPU, the graphics processor, you know, for the time it was amazing, but it was pretty easy to hit the wall with it. So we were constantly, every time we'd add a feature, we'd immediately have to go into performance tuning um, because it would overwhelm the device and that kind of stuff. And it was, we had a very demanding schedule. Um, We had two very demanding people um, at the top of the food chain who were paying attention to the project that didn't like no. Um, so it was, there was a lot, a tremendous number of challenges. It was an ex- extremely draining project. Um, and then the, re- the reception we got at the end of it was, was, uh, was difficult to accept. Right. Why do you think the daily was not more successful? Um, one of it was management. So we were, and I, I don't mean this as a, a negative to anybody, but we were taking newspaper people and putting them into the digital age without training. And that was probably the biggest mistake that was made on the project as there was people who were very successful in the newspaper era who had no idea how to run a digital environment. Um, and it was a big, big, big shock for them. There was a lot of budgetary problems. Um, a lot of money was bu- burned on things that in hindsight were not needed. Um, there was a lot of overkill on that side. So, you know, th- if that same product were to be or to, were to arise today, it would be a lot more successful because everybody now knows the differences to deal with. You know, um, you know, newspaper people, they know location is important. So we were sitting on 6th you know, Avenue in Manhattan. Well, that's a waste of money. You know, right. put, them, put them in Indiana where you're paying you know, a dollar a square foot. Don't put them on 6th you know, Avenue. Um, they bought equipment for all the developers. Well, developers have their own equipment and they're really good with it. Right. Um, you, know, you know, printers, we don't need printers. You know, just all you know, little, you know, tiny little things like that that ended up you know, amounting to a tremendous amount of money. Um, don't work your developers too hard. And this is something that I, I keep preaching even as I consult for other companies. As they're like, oh, we're, you know, we're VC back. We're a small company. We got to work crazy hours because that's what everybody else does. No, that's how everybody else fails. Don't work your developers 20 hours a day because they're going to produce crap. Um, you know, work them a, re- a reasonable amount. Move deadlines. The deadlines are not fixed points in time. If if the deadline's unrealistic, and as soon as we discover it's unrealistic, move it. Don't say, "Well, we have to have to make that deadline work." You know, just too bad. Especially when we're developing something that's never been developed before. You know, it's like we're building this. How long is it going to take? Uh, three months. And then halfway through it, you go, "Oh, wow, that was a lot harder than I thought. It's going to take us five months." And then the management go, "Too bad. Uh, it's got to be the other way around. We got to be accept to say move stuff." Um, that was probably one of the biggest issues that we had with that project, where we had fixed deadlines, locked in deadlines, where we hadn't even written a lot of code yet, and we already knew when we were shipping. It's kind of you know, that, that it's very backwards. With all of your experience in consulting and also just in um, developing on Apple platforms, how do you feel about Apple's current direction and how has it impacted you as a consultant? Obviously, Apple moves fast and uh, every year there's new features that come out of WWDC for developers to implement on their apps and that certainly translates into the consulting world as well with new demands on consultants. Um, how does keeping up with Apple and um, Apple's direction affect you? 
Uh, it's a challenge because as soon as you feel like you've got something, they come out with something new. Um, it, it takes nine months to consume what they've produced. And then as soon as you've got it consumed, you've got a, a small amount of breathing room and then it's uh, new stuff on start all over again. Um, I think, and I, I say this just to, from my own you know, personal perspective is that Apple First, Apple is not one unit. They're, they're, they're a tremendous organization of small teams. And I always have to constantly remember that because when I look at some of their products, I'm like, this could be done so much better. You guys, you know, you missed this. And, you know, App, you know, Apple's, you know Apple's making mistakes. Well, yes, they're, they're made by humans. And I think that either as a company as a whole or on a team level, they need to take a breath. And they need to clean some stuff up. And unfortunately, they're under such a limelight that they can't afford to do that too much. Um, I almost wish they could almost say, okay, this product, no new features next year. You're going to be purely on polish and maintenance mode for what, for the next year or two years. And just say, hey, we're not shipping a new mail for two years. We're going to ship a new mail in two years from today when it's way, way better. Something like that. Um, maybe that would work. I don't have an answer for it, but I feel like they need to do that. Um, I'm still on the fence about Swift. That was going to be I, my next question. Yeah. Yeah. Um, there's some cool things in there, but there's still, there's also some big mistakes in there. Um, I what don't, are some of those mistakes? Uh, the verbosity of the language. It's mm -hmm. uh, Two is better than one. But uh, when I was using one with Cordetta, it was more verbose than Objective-C. And Objective-C is like one of the most verbose languages out there. Right, right. Um, their error, error handling has gotten better, but it's still, it's still clunky. Mm -hmm. There's still this, this belief or this uh, desire to say that we're not going to allow nils and we're not going to allow generic objects and we're not going to allow pointers. It's like, okay, we've been down this road. Uh, Java tried this, C Sharp. I, mean, I could go on and on about the languages. Yeah, it it doesn't end well, um, except the fact that you know, as until until computing does a shift, we're going to have pointers and we're going to have you know nils, and we need to be able to accept those. And I thought Objective C did that very well, even though it's a very old language, it did it very well. Where Swift, you're fighting with that. And who knows? Maybe it's because Swift doesn't play well with the Objective-C side. I don't know. But it, it still feels like it's very much a struggle to get the language right. Um, and I'm not convinced we needed it yet. But I don't know. also don't know what's on fi Apple's five-year plan. There might be something coming out in three years where we'll look back and go, oh, that's why we needed the new language. That right. could possibly. But for today, if I need to ship something under an unrealistic deadline, I'm going to use Objective-C. Right. Yeah, you know, if if I have playtime, if someone says go research and develop this, which does happen every once in a while, then I'll go play with it in Swift because you know why not? You know, and explore it and see what we can do with it. But for most for most contracting jobs, it's like I need you to build X. I need it by this date. Can you do it? And it's going to be an Objective C because it's a known quantity. It's not shifting underneath me every three months. Right. No, I completely agree with you. I started a project in May where the client insisted this project has to be in Swift. He felt, that, you know, not a technical person, but feels that's where I need to be so that I'm poised for the future. Tried to talk him out of it a little bit, but I kind of tried to change my mindset. There was a lot of, um, 
uh, I don't know what the word would be, but a lot maybe hyperbole in the community that everything should be in Swift going forward. But the last couple projects I started, I'm doing them in Objective-C, not because I don't like Swift or because I'm not let, like you uh, using it on longer term projects, but because when I need to get something done a little bit more quickly in a way that um, meets my previous expectations about the behavior of the language, which I'm not yet, maybe maybe it's just that I'm not, haven't spent enough time with Swift over the last year, um, I, I need to use something that that's proven to me. Um, and I think that that's going to be an issue a little bit with um, the public perception of Swift versus maybe how practical it is on in the immediate future. It's going to take it a while. Um, I always joke that until Apple ships an app in Swift, maybe we shouldn't be ship, shipping apps, apps in Swift. But there's the other side of it of, you know, if nobody uses it, how are they going to know what to fix? So right. I, I, right now I'm comfortable to say I'm happy everybody else is using Swift because they're making it a better language. But in the meantime, I'm going to ship stuff in Objective-C because I know how to ship it. And I've got 20 years of knowledge you know, collective knowledge inside of Apple using Objective-C. You know, the foundation's a known quantity. The frameworks are a known quantity. Where in Swift, when you get an error, you're like, is this my error? Or is this an error in the language? Or is this an error in Xcode? You know, and you, you, you have to raise that question almost every single time. Going, okay, am I doing it wrong? Or is the language compiling it wrong? And it's kind of a scary place to be when you've got a ticking clock over your head. Yeah, that, that absolutely makes sense. So tell us a little bit about your your life outside of consulting. What's this racing thing all about? <laughs> uh, racing is an obsession. Um, it's a passion. So I rode motorcycles as a, as a teenager. And when my son was born, I gave them up. And after he turned 18, um, I kind of said, oh, I want to get back into this. So I got back into it, and motorcycles changed a lot from 1990 to, when did I do it, 2008. Um, 18 years of development said, took a motorcycle that pretty much anybody could drive or ride, excuse me, and then motorcycles nowadays, especially, especially the one that I bought, it's like, this is an extremely high-performance machine. And if you want to ride it like a daily commuter, fine, it'll do that. If you want to push your skills, you need to do that somewhere safer. Um, and I didn't understand that at first. So I was up in the mountains, in the canyons, like everybody else. I was being a complete yahoo. Um, and had a bit of a get-off up in the mountains. I was like, okay, that was bad. Uh, and my wife's like, are you sure this is something you really want to be doing? Because that was kind of scary. And I'm like, got to be a better way. So decided to go out on the racetracks. Like, okay, I'm going to go um, – Go to this school, you know, in January, and I'm gonna I'm gonna see what it's like. I'm gonna just gonna you know, I'm gonna learn how to be a better better rider on the bike, and I'm gonna see if this track thing is for me. So I did this two day school in, in uh, Las Vegas, and I came out of that and said, okay, this is what I'm doing for the rest of my life. This is this is exactly what I've you know secretly been craving and didn't know it. It was giving me an adrenaline rush. It was giving me the excitement. It was giving me somewhere to to work on a skill set that I always wish I had in a relatively safe environment. That so, that I, so I started going to track days, taking my bike to the track days. My wife's like, okay, if it's going to be a track bike, turn it into a track bike. It's not on the street anymore. You know, we, we worked out all the details that I had a much safer, slower, easier to ride street bike, and we had this track bike. And then her and I started going, going to the racetrack a lot. We just happened to be living in California at the time. 
purely by coincidence. And it's like, oh, there's several racetracks around us. So we started going to the racetracks and getting better at the racetrack, taking more more education, learning from more teachers, um, ex- getting better and better and better at that. And I was like, okay, I'm, I'm plateauing at the, at, the, at the racetrack or at the track days because you're not racing. You're just going out on the racetrack and going fast. You know, what's next? Where can I actually improve beyond this? And one of my coaches said, well, club racing. You should start club racing. And I'm like, uh, that sounds kind of scary. And he's like, no, what you're doing now is scary because you have this huge delta of skill sets. When you're racing, you're racing against people in, in the same skill set. So it's actually safer for the most part, you know, statistically speaking. So I was like, all right, I'll try this thing um, and instantly got hooked on it. It was just the, the most awesome thing in the world to go out there. The, there's a camaraderie there that can't be beat. Um, the the actual skill that you need to race is very hard and takes a lot of effort where it's not just I go there, I twist the throttle and see what happens. It's I'm eating the right foods, I'm bicycling, I'm standing on a balance board for an hour a day. It's you're actually, you know, it changed my entire life around it. And it was to the to the good. You know, I'm I'm healthier and more fit now than I have ever been in my life. Um, all because I want to go faster on the racetrack and I want to beat that guy that's been beating me out for the last year. Um, so it, it it gave me a focus for that kind of stuff. Um, and on the other side of it, for something that perhaps the engineers can more understand, other than thinking I'm just nuts, is it gave me a point to think about one thing at a time. So when we're as engineers, especially when you're working for yourself and you got twelve different clients, you're thinking about twelve things at once all the time. You know, you're thinking about the code you're writing, thinking about the deadline that's on that code, whether I'm going to meet the mortgage payment, who my next client's going to be, all that stuff's in your head. Your head's busy, and you probably have a hard time sleeping, or don't sleep very well, or figure out some other way to solve that problem. When I'm when I'm racing, all that goes away. It has to, or I crash. It's bad. <laughs> So, you know, it, it's one of those, it's focus or die. And I get this 20 minutes of clarity when I'm in the, on the racetrack when I'm racing because all I can think about is there's my next reference point, there's my brake marker, there's my apex, brake here, twist the throttle there, get off the bike, all that. You know, I'm living absolutely in the moment. And that's really the only time that I get to live in the moment because the rest of my day is dealing with Stack Overflow, my blog, Apple, what code's coming out, you know, the, the, the noise that we live in today is so loud <clears throat> that I find racing at 150 miles an hour with a, my, you know, by, my heart rate at 150 beats per minute to be relaxing. <laughs> well, my final two questions for you. One is, what are you up to now since you left Martian Craft and what's in your immediate future? And the second is, as an elder statesman of the iOS and Mac consulting community, what kind of advice do you have to younger consultants? Okay, first question first. What am I doing right now? Right now, I am working on a book. So when Swift came out, I considered updating the Core Data book, realized Swift wasn't ready yet. So we put it on hold. Swift 2 came out, and we decided, okay, let's refresh the Objective-C book, which is what I'm doing at the moment. Um, As soon as that's refreshed, then we're going to be doing a version in Swift and we're kind of also making sure Swift isn't doing any drastic left or right turns in the meantime. But we're going to get a, a version of the book out in Swift in the fairly near future. So that's, that's encompassing my, my day-to-day. 
Um, and I'm and I'm also contracting because I'm I want to get back into the contracting. Um, one of the things that didn't work very well for me at Martiancraft is I end up becoming a manager again. Um, so now I'm back into I really want to code. I really want to help uh, other developers, other engineers. So I'm doing more workshops at conferences, and I'm consulting with other with other companies. So you know I'm happy to come in for an hour, for a day, for a week, and help the team, whether they're at the design phase or the shipping phase, to make their apps better. And I'm kind of hoping to run with that um, going forward. But as for what next year is, I don't know. Uh, for this year, it's getting those books out, helping other engineers, helping teams, helping to, to educate on the back of the cabinet. Um, advice for new developers. Not necessarily new, but new. let's say <clears throat> new consultants. New consultant. So stand your ground. Um, Negotiating hungry uh, is always bad. If you absolutely need that contract, you're not going to negotiate well. So either accept that you're not going to negotiate it well or don't. And that's kind of a, you know, it's a tough choice because sometimes you're like, I really need this contract because i got to pay the mortgage. Then accept that you're probably not going to get a very, the best negotiation possible and you're going to regret it later. Um, but if you can, stand your ground. You know, if you say, this is going to take six months, I'm going to build it right the first time and it's going to cost X. And if they say, well, I can go to India and get that for half, right. then you say, call me in six months and let <laughs> me know how that turns out. Every once in a while it turns out well, but statistically they're going to be calling you in six months and going, okay, so how much to fix this? Um, and as well as standing your ground when you say this needs to be rewritten, don't worry about hurting somebody else's feelings because, you know, unfortunately nowadays it's, you know, everything's got to be politically correct. Sometimes you have to stay up and say, this code is not good enough. It needs to go away. We need to rewrite it. And this is how much it's going to cost. Clients will respect you even if they tell you no. And when they tell you yes, you're going to end up having a much better relationship with them going forward. Um, it's a hard line to take, but once you get used to taking it, once you get used to saying, this is the bad news, we can fix this, but it's, we have to throw this away, um, it helps. And the other thing I said, make sure you write good code. Don't, don't write a, you know, a house of cards just to show them that it'll work, that the concept will work, because they're going to ship it. Expect them to ship your house of cards. Great advice. So how can listeners get in touch with you? What's the best way to reach you? Uh, email is the best way. I strive to reply to every email. Um, that is absolutely the best way to get a hold of me. It's uh, the primary email address that I, I like people to use is marcus at cimgf.com. You know, Coco's my girlfriend.com, my, my blog, just marcus at. Um, other than that, that's, that's really the best way. I mean, you can ping me on Facebook and Twitter, and I try to respond to all that stuff as well. But, you know, if you have a question, it's not going to fit in 140 characters, so send me an email. Okay. Is there anything else you'd like to plug? Uh, other than that, my books are coming out, and the biggest thing is I am available for hire. Um, like I said, for an hour a day or a week, you know, if you if you have problems or questions or concerns with persistence or networking, please contact me. I am way cheaper than the reviews you're going to get if it doesn't work in an elevator. Um, I can I really can help. It's it's really not that hard. And if you don't believe me, come to one of my workshops, spend a day with me, and you'll realize that building the persistence layer in the back of the cabinet correctly is worth its weight in gold. Awesome. Well, Marcus, I want to thank you so much for coming on Consult. I really appreciate it, and I think the listeners are really going to appreciate it too.
Thanks for listening to my interview with Marcus Zara, and thanks to Marcus for joining us on the show. If you want to leave us a review on iTunes, we'd very much appreciate it. And if you want to check out the show notes, please visit consultpodcast.com. Until next time, have a great month.